This is Inform Your Resistance with PRA, Political Research Associates. Tune in twice a month to hear experts, researchers, journalists, academics, and movement strategists explain some of the most significant contemporary threats to democracy from the mainstream and far right. With Inform Your Resistance, we distill what you need to know most. I'm your host, Koki Mendes, Communications Director here at PRA. Today, I'm joined by Prachi Patankar to explore a little understood, but large and well-resourced movement to influence U.S. politics and culture, Hindu nationalism or Hindutva. We take a look at the broad landscape of Hindu nationalist organizing and influence, including the ways it intersects with other important supremacist ideologies, discuss its deep rootedness in caste hierarchy, and tackle the question of how to recognize and counter this powerful movement, particularly in the terrain of U.S. elections and legislation. Prachi Patankar is an anti-caste and feminist writer and organizer. She has been involved in social movements that link the local and the global, police brutality and war, migration and militarization, race and caste, women of color feminism, and global gender justice. Her work has been published by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Jadalia, Jacobin, and several other publications. Prachi, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Thank you for having me, Koki. It's really a great pleasure. We want to talk today about Hindu nationalism, which I think is a movement that is pretty under-understood in the U.S. It really complicates the impression, uh, somewhat fictitious impression that we have that our elections are and our political system are insulated from international influence. And it's also uh, a much larger and more influential movement than I think many of us on the left and in the political sphere are even aware. So I'm going to start us off just with what are the core tenets of Hindu nationalist ideology and what are the movement's socio-political goals in the U.S., which is, I know, a large question. So definitely take your time with it. Yeah, thank you for that. So Hindu nationalism, sometimes it's called Hindutva. And Hindutva literally means essence of Hinduism. So Hindu nationalism, Hindutva is a far-right kind of ethno-nationalist, Hindu nationalist political ideology, which is distinguished from Hinduism by its emphasis on the absolute cultural and political hegemony of Hindus in India. So in Hindu nationalism, like white nationalism, uh, it's like white nationalism in that it believes that a single social group, uh, which is Hindu, should have political dominance in, in the nation state. Uh, and they dream, the Hindu nationalists dream of a Hindu nation, which is ruled by uh, a dominant caste and a Hindu-centered culture and laws and people. So these Hindutva's adherents seek to turn India in, in this Hindu nation state while also promoting a type of monolithic, con a monolithic concept of Hinduism or Hindu identity and practice that really obscures and denies this long-standing internal diversity of what has come to known as Hinduism uh, today in India and other parts of the world. And this Hindu ideology, Hindutva ideology, Hindu nationalism, lives strongly not only in India, but also in the diaspora, including the United States. And that's kind of what we are, the reason we're talking about it today. And this ideology really promotes the narrative of Hindus as victims of thousands of years of 
so-called Muslim rule, and then creates fear among its followers of being taken over by Islam, being taken over by Muslims, and then promotes this narrative of of quote-unquote Hindu grievances that actually demonizes Muslim, demonizes Christians and other so-called kind of Abrahamic religions, um, which are seen as outsiders, right, outside of outside of India. Uh, and it promotes a kind of a Brahmanic, which is, I'll talk about it um, soon, what that means is a kind of dominant caste ideology, dominant caste-oriented form of Hinduism and its culture and its practice, which really appropriates um, and attempts to consume other religious ideologies and spiritualities in India too, including Buddhism and other religions that were born in the region as, and, and consumes them as part of Hindu religion or as approximate to Hindu religion, and really denying the historical story of contestation between Buddhism and Hinduism also, um, which was Buddhism was at odds with Hinduism and or Brahminism for a long time over many fronts, primarily with its caste system. So Hindutva in India and the diaspora continues to provide this kind of religious justification also for, for caste, embracing caste as this kind of cultural and benign, benign division of Indian society and while denying the very nature of the caste system as a very deeply hierarchical, uh, oppressive and apartheid and exploitation-based institution within India and now in the diaspora as well. So there is this kind of constant attempt of conflation also, if you're looking at the U.S. society, of Indian or immigrant with Hindu American. So Indian means Hindu, Indian American means Hindu American. And so exalting this Hindu identity and really differentiating it from Indian or South Asian or and becoming actually more proximate to whiteness. Thank you. That was very comprehensive and very clear. Um, you broke down a fairly large movement um, quite quickly. You talked about um, the imagined sort of opponent enemy as Muslims and Christians. Um, what about the sort of uh, the response to increasing secularism, especially in the United States? Is the religious identity um, part and parcel of an ethnic identity or is there a religiosity to the movement as well? In the United States? In the United States, yeah. If the goal of the Hindu right-wing supremacist organizations in India is to, you know, political goal is to become indistinguishable from the society itself, like Hindu is equals India, Hindu equals everybody who lives in that in that region. And in some Hindu right-wing nationalists actually look at like a, what they call Akhanda Bharat, Akhanda India, a full India, which includes not just the India currently and in, in its borders, but India's Bangladesh and Nepal and other parts of the region as well. So the actual, if you look at the even right, right, right wing uh, of the Hindu ideology, their goal in even exceeds the current borders of what in what we see as India too. So I would say the goal of also in the Hindu right wing, Hindu supremacist organizations in uh, in the U.S. is also to spread and build legitimacy and support for the Hindu nationalist narrative that is coming out of the India and build that narrative in the United States itself. So in, in that sense, yes, I think there is a sense of, like I said, to equate India with Hinduness. So any time there is a an attack 
uh, say there's a xenophobic attack against somebody who happens to be Indian, it's perceived and, and it's promoted as a Hindu American attack. There's been instances where that has happened. Um, there was an instance, uh, I think last year, where there was two women who were attacked in a parking lot by somebody, uh, and it was a xenophobic kind of a response, a hate kind of, kind of hate speech that happened. And some of the Hindu fundamentalist organizations promoted that as like, this is a Hindu phobic attack, et cetera. And that, that's kind of the way that these people operate. So the goal is to kind of consistently promote this narrative and also doing so, doing this by manipulating and capturing some righteous frustration that people have uh, in the United States, right? Because they, there's experiences of racism, there's experiences of xenophobia that may be faced by some Indian American communities um, but Hindu nationalists will be using that to direct that energy further and exploiting the feelings of kind of so-called victimhood into pride, uh, a pride in kind of the more upper caste cultural heritage and acceptance of Hindu as the true owners of you know, the land in India. So they would, the, this is the kind of the way that the network and the Hindu nationalist organizations operate. They also fund and resource internationalist organizations and parties in India and contribute towards consolidating their power there locally there, globally, uh, and the U.S. as well, and just support the shift in the kind of U.S. domestic and also just foreign policy regarding the understanding of what India is um, and actually supporting the Hindu nationalist regime over there. And then also just financing Hindu-friendly politicians in the U.S. And, and targeting their critiques as well. So it's a it's a really broad strategy when you when you think about it. With a very it sounds like limited understanding of who, like what Hinduism is and means as a cultural identity and and forcing everyone to fit into that category of belonging. Right. So you, you talked about sort of the ways in which Hindu nationalists fund Hindu-aligned electeds in the United States, how there's a flow of capital through foundations. What are some of the other arenas of influence and modes of operation that Hindu nationalists utilize to achieve their goals? And can you talk a little bit about where the boundaries of this political organizing project lie? Are there specific sectors or actors with whom Hindu nationalist organizers will not seek to influence? And how do Hindu nationalists build support from non-Hindu communities? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. You know, there is a very coordinated and strong uh, network of Hindu supremacist organizations in the U.S. that are key to building a bridge between the U.S. and the Hindu supremacist movement in India. And the bridge exists through exchanges of ideologies and common narratives. It exchanged through money and personnel between center of the movement in India. And, and then it's the, the kind of more largest, wealthy, powerful um, arms in the, United, in the United States and the diaspora as well. So wherever there are particular parties uh, or formations in, the, in India around so the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, of India, VHP, VHP will have an arm here called VHP of, uh, of America, right? So in, that's its most kind of known form, but there are many different kind of, you know, inter-organized, it's an or inter-organizational projects with, you know, high levels of discipline, high levels of coordination um, between each other, and really an emphasis on sociocultural organizing in every space that's accessible to um, this network. 
as Hindu supremacist groups like RSS, you know, Rashtriya Sangh, which is a national volunteer organization or national volunteer group. It's kind of that's the uh, translation of it, um, which has a motto of every project or cause will have an organization, right? Which has meant that there are dozens of these entities in the U.S. alone carrying out goals of Hindu supremacist agendas. And they are um, not focused on political terrain uh, alone. They're in religious spaces. They're in cultural organizing spaces. They're in young youth organizing spaces, youth cultural spaces. They're in education institutions. You know, they're in in student spaces. They're kind of networked and trying to kind of uh, ensure that some of this um, some of these goals are carrying, being carried out in each of the areas and each of the terrains within the United States as well. It's interesting because on one hand, there are, you know, you'll see many Indian Hindu Americans who endorse uh, like a Hindu nationalist ideology. They're actually, there's many of them are actually democratic leaning um, in the U.S. as well. So when it comes to U.S. domestic issues, you'll see there's a there's now a category called the Modi Democrats, right? Modi is the India's uh, prime minister who presides over, uh, who's the uh, leader of the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is a leading Hindu nationalist party that's leading the government. And so, so this Modi Democrat, they don't see their support for Modi, who is a very Hindu nationalist prime minister, uh, and their support for BJP, uh, Bharatiya Janata Party, and they're voting for Democrat Democratic Party as mutually exclusive political identities. They don't they don't see that, even while they demand kind of diversity and multicultural equality in the U.S. sphere. These same Modi Democrats or Indian Americans, Hindu Americans, show public and enthusiastic support for Modi and BJP's Islamophobic policies, their rhetoric, the hard the hardline citizenship laws, which are really anti-immigrant laws, uh, anti-minority laws within the U.S. And also just adherence to a very violent politics in India. And, and they, so they don't see that, which are actually more aligned with Trump's ideology than the democratic ideology in, in the face of it. But th- there is this kind of uh, dissonance there that has to be exposed. So it's important to understand and expose this contradiction that Hindu supremacy, as it manifests in the U.S. and the diaspora, actually is more of a key ally to white supremacy than it is in any other ideologies, right? So... It has taken root in kind of the global North countries in various different ways. And, and I think important to kind of think about some examples, you know, if we want to kind of understand how the Hindu nationalists and Hindu supremacist cultural organizations are pushing some of these tendencies uh, within smaller spaces and smaller uh, domestic spaces. Like recently in Edison, New Jersey, some Hindu local uh, far right groups paraded bulldozers, so so they're uh, which is a symbol of anti-Muslim oppression because it kind of harkens back to the BJP government-led um, efforts to destroy private homes and businesses um, that were mostly owned by Muslim minority communities, and you know uh, this was used to you know bring back a bulldozer in one of the India kind of independence parades. And it was a clearly anti-Muslim, Islamophobic, bigot, bigoted um, effort to both kind of promote the ideology, promote the leaders in, in India. And it's also important to remember, in, in this case, there was a multiracial, multi-faith coalition that united in opposition to this. And it resulted in the local mayor 
denouncing this, the council members denouncing this, and local people denouncing this, and the and the people who were involved in it had to apologize, right? So there are ways that this can be turned around, but there are, there are some dangerous precedences that are happening in the U.S. and also in uh, most recently in uh, I don't know if this is I'm saying this name right, but Leicester, UK. Uh, there was a UK in uh, Hindu supremacist marchers um, participating in Hindu Muslim riots in the city. Right, so these things are not you know uh, remaining as harms and uh, violence that happens in India alone, but they're, but they're transferring through the ideologies and through these networks into the U.S. spaces as well. So. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the bounds, uh, you know, I would say that the Hindu right wing is trying to both be in the the democratic multicultural space within the liberal spaces as well. But also over the past decade, you've seen Indian communities, Indian American Hindu communities, especially shifting steadily towards the Republican Party as well. It's not a big shift. Of course, there is still a huge majority of Hindu American, Indian American and Indian American community that is very much in the democratic uh, kind of voter base, but there is slow shift that's happening. And we can think about that shift happening around these lines, right? Because there's Hindu supremacy is clearly seeing themselves more in alignment with white supremacist politics, right? You see that there's alliances made with Steve Bannon and Robert Spencer, from Hindu supremacist organizations and the white supremacist far right, there's vocal support. You know, you know, there's it's not a, a total surprise that Vivek Ramaswamy has come up as a Hindu, uh, really a, a Hindu candidate um, that is in the Republican Party candidate. And there's other dozens of right wing Republican candidates and new formations, including kind of Hindu super PACs that are promoting uh, ideas that are more around what white supremacists and you know um, right-wing conservative ideologies like opposing affirmative action, for example, right? VHP America uh, has an arm, a political arm called Hindu Pact that was part of opposing the affirmative action, claiming that the racial quotas in education actually adversely impact uh, Indian American students. Um, and so this is not different than kind of the way that uh, upper caste people in India are uh, they have really uh, bad sentiments around caste-based education quotas for oppressed caste communities and Dalit communities in India. There was a Republican Hindu coalition that started in 2015 that you know welcomed Trump and and honored Trump and is talking about kind of the alliance between Trump and Modi at that time. And so this is all like they they're really going into every terrain, but we have to understand that even in that front, they're most equal kind of ideal ideologues are the white supremacies. Thank you. Between the uh, broad appeal across the U.S. political spectrum, the sort of disciplined network of organizations, I mean, you paint a really poignant picture of, of sort of threat and also how pervasive this movement already is in this country. You mentioned caste and sort of the parallel between affirmative action programs and caste quota programs in India. Uh, I'd love to spend a little time talking about the role that caste plays in this movement. For those of our listeners unfamiliar, caste is a deeply entrenched system of social stratification in India. Uh, can you talk about how sort of caste relates to the rise of Hindu nationalism in India in its sort of origin stories? And then 
Uh, you've mentioned this to a degree, but talk a little more about how caste functions in the U.S. diaspora communities and how do Hindu nationalists deploy caste identity politics in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, this is such a, it's an important and very integral to this conversation, actually. And, you know, much like race in the U.S. and many parts of the world also, uh, caste system is used to divide society to unfair advantage of certain groups over the others. And just as we cannot separate kind of the challenges around economic and social exploitation and oppression uh, from race and racism in South Asia, you cannot separate the caste system from these questions. So it's very weaved into all of these issues. Just kind of the in terms of the origin, it's a caste is a 2,500-year-old 20, system of dehumanization. Uh, and it was created as a social structure in the middle of first millennium BCE by something called Brahmanism, which is a spiritual philosophy that's, a, that's thousands of years old. And Brahmanism is what has come to dominate the religious ideology of what we know as Hinduism today. So the biggest dominant practices that are pushed in Hinduism are actually Brahmanism that come from Brahmanism. So Brahmanism created four major caste categories uh, within the caste system. And there's hundreds of different subcastes that would fit within these four major categories. And within these four major categories of caste system, Brahmins uh, occupy the topmost level in the caste hierarchy. Um, they're supposed to, by birthright, perform the most pure, kind of intellectual, clean forms of labor, quote-unquote clean forms of labor. And then Dalits were actually outcasts. They're not even within the kind of uh, four uh, Varanas system or four caste system. They're at the outside of the caste system and therefore supposed to perform kind of the most lowest uh, and most impure quote-unquote form of labor. And because they uh, perform the most unclean, you know, caste-based occupations like cleaning human waste or handling human uh, or even animal corpses, handling flesh, meat. These are the things that, that are relegated for the late communities to do. They are thought to be polluting. They're thought to be unclean, even though this is forced upon them as an occupation. And then because they're thought to be polluting and unclean, they're supposed to be untouchables, right? So that untouchability practices was carried on for many, 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 many decades. It's less of an issue, even though it's still of an issue now, but the structure of the caste system of kind of um, what is Dr. Amberger, who is the founder of, who, of the Dalit movement and the leader who really drafted the Indian constitution, he called it kind of caste as a graded division. It's a graded, a form of graded hierarchy. And it's a graded division of labor where Brahmins occupy the topmost category where they do this work, then it goes down by by equally by that hierarchy where Dalits and uh, Adivasi indigenous communities are even outside of that category, right? So this kind of social hierarchy, the uh, division of laborers has continued. So that means Brahmins maintain this suppression of an oppression of caste by controlling and limiting access to different forms of power and knowledge and livelihoods and love and marriage, who can marry each other, who can can have land, who can have resources. And so this is, the, you know, going on for hundreds of years and it's continued through what has been known as Hinduism. So if Hindutva, um, as we know it today, is supposed to be the essence of Hinduism, right, then Hindutva believes that it have to go back to that really that the way that that caste system is originally was uh, supposed to be conceived. 
And so Hindutva will always go back to that essence of the caste system and the essence of that Hinduism, because it is it is part of that, it is part and parcel of that. So that is kind of how we need to understand how caste still functions. So these unjust kind of divisions within the society have continued, even though with, with time, with leaders like Ambedkar and other anti-caste movements, things have changed, right? There was, uh, it was outlawed, caste system was outlawed in 1948. It has evolved with modern times with the system of reservation, which is affirmative action in India, where many oppressed caste communities have been able to form and be part of different kinds of occupations. These divisions remain and they, when people immigrated from uh, India to the United States, most of them were dominant caste Indians. They came to the United States and they brought these divisions. They brought these understandings of the the caste system with them. They didn't leave those behind. And so as things have been changing in the last many decades in India, in the most recent years, uh, even though in the beginning there were dominant caste Hindus and dominant caste Indians coming to the United States, most recently we've seen more influx of Dalit and oppressed caste communities coming into the United States. So that's created a tension, right? So when all your kind of known uh, society and life, you've been told as a Brahmin, as an upper caste person, you deserve this occupation because you are by religious legitimacy and doctrine supposed to have this occupation that you are entitled to it, right? You come with that kind of ideology and you come to the United States, you're part of the tech sector, you're part of the finance sector, you're part of academia, you're part of all these sectors. And suddenly you see oppressed caste communities come into those sectors and take those occupations. That is a threat to who you are and your identity. And so you're, you're seeing a lot of, lot more places and instances where there are managers who are dominant caste managers, even in the tech sectors in the U.S. and finance sectors and in academia, where now new Indian and oppressed caste communities are coming in and the managers are becoming very casteist. And that is playing out in different ways. That is really hard for sometimes outside communities to understand, but this is playing out. And there have been surveys done by groups like Equality Labs and uh, others where we're, we're seeing that the diaspora communities are, are reporting enduring caste discrimination firsthand where, you know, I think Quality Lab survey that said that one in four Dalits have faced verbal or physical assault and, and two, two out of like every three uh, have faced discrimination at work. So this is quite prevalent. And we have seen there's also instances and examples like in, 20, in 2022, Actually, the state of California filed a suit against a tech company because this was happening, uh, the tech company called Cisco. This happened because there was a, a Dalit employee who was feeling harassment by an Indian American manager. And so when the state of California filed the suit, Hindu America Foundation, which is more Hindu right-wing leading organization, filed a motion declaring that the efforts of the state of California were actually unconstitutional and they claimed that they were trying to impose on the scope and the nature of Hindu religious beliefs and teachings and practices. So they were trying to oppose somebody trying to challenge caste discrimination by bringing in the Hindu religious beliefs into uh, this issue. So we don't even have to make the connection that this is a issue within. They are they are making that connection that this is part of the Hindu nationalist framework itself. So you know, there's a couple other examples that we can talk about, but 
you know, even in the most recent uh, example where Dalit and uh, anti-caste leaders trying to make sure that in the state of California, there would be, you know, caste protections that were uh, included within the state of California to pass legislation to ensure that protection for oppressed caste communities in California the legislation went through both houses but it was stopped at the at the governor level because the hindu nationalist leaders were trying to push against it and they they have claimed this proudly that we raised money and pushed a, a governor to veto this bill and so hindu america foundation and other groups have also tried to push that and and they said this bill is a hindu phobic bill Right. And so this is a new thing. Right. And when you're talking about Hindu phobia, it's this new invented construct that is promoted by many of these Hindu nationalist groups, which really is kind of a weaponization. It's trying to shield, you know, the Modi government from criticism. It's using being used as a reactionary weapon against progressive measures like caste protection bill. It's used whenever when people are talking about Islamophobia within Hindu communities. So anytime we're kind of trying to raise these questions, they're coming back as Hindu phobia. So like we talked about, there is obviously there are some instances of anti-Hindu bigotry that have occurred. There are instances of anti-xenophobic attacks that it may include Hindus and may include Indian Americans. But Hindu phobia is not a structural issue like uh, Islamophobia is a structural issue in the United States. It's not a structural issue in a way that anti-Semitism is a structural issue in, within the United States. Um, and so it is. It is kind of this. Hindu nationalists know that you know they need to put this sanitized spin on the caste system, saying the caste system is actually just a way to divide ourselves and we live equally, we coexist together. And then at the same time, deny that caste system exists in this way and say that it's actually a colonial construct. So that's constant back and forth that we go through when trying to actually fight for the rights of the oppressed caste communities, the rights of Muslim Americans, and point out what is happening in India as kind of transferring and being part of the harms that are happening in the U.S. as well kind of affecting the Indian American and South Asian community here as well. You give us a very fascinating and sort of uh, horrifying narrative of Hindu phobia um, and how it's deployed in instances of direct legislation and, and advocacy. I mean, it's so interesting to think about because we so often in the United States conceptualize politics with the lens of race and to understand that there's a, a whole other system of social stratification at play as well really complicates how we understand um, sort of racial, ethnic, uh, and community-based politics in the United States. Sticking with this for a minute, um, as I mentioned, U.S. politics are often understood at the level of race. And with a dominant white race and an imagined broad coalition comprised of all other non-white races. And as you've mentioned, there's very strong parallels and um, commensurate agendas between a Hindu nationalist political formation and a white nationalist political formation. So how does Hindu nationalist organizing in the U.S. fit into this and complicate this binaristic system of sort of white races on one end and non-white races on the other 
And what advantages do Hindu nationalists gain from a binaristic narrative like this? Mm. I, I do think one is that we need to really have a more complex understanding of racialization of different communities in the United States. So, you know, that is not just white people and then lumping everybody else into together in the same place, right? The way that Black communities are racialized and face deep structural racial oppression and violence and exploitation is deeply connected to the history of enslavement. Similarly, genocide of indigenous communities and the continuous structural oppression they face is deeply connected to that history. And so if we have to be able to differentiate those Asian or South Asian communities do not have the same historical context. So the oppression that they face has to be understood within that historical context. So for South Asian communities, many of whom historically came from dominant caste communities uh, who came here as professionals, also came here benefiting from the victory of after colonialism in the 1940s. They, many, many of them came, came actually in the 1960s and then immigrated to the U.S. when Black communities had already won some hard-fought civil rights struggles. So they're coming into an United States that you know, is in, is that's that that's the terrain. And there's also a class factor, right? Indian Americans and Hindu Americans, especially, are one of the wealthiest commu- uh, minority communities in the U- U.S. And most of whom are from dominant caste communities, and they have benefited from these victories, and are also not racialized or don't face similar race-based exploitation to Black or Indigenous communities or even Latinx communities, for that matter, in the U.S. And so. These factors have to be acknowledged and understood when we are thinking about race, when we are thinking about caste, and when you think about Hindu, uh, uh, what Hindu Americans may face and what Indian Americans face in the U.S. And the kind of simple white versus POC analysis, which is not rooted in the historical understanding of racialization or, or white supremacy, creates this kind of surface level multiracial understanding of racial justice. And Hindu supremacist groups benefit from that, right? And it allows them to say, oh, we, we can be multicultural and, you know, you need to respect us because we are part of that multicultural identity. Um, and then they can be considered as a minority while also holding very powerful, wealthy positions in the U.S. and also holding at the same time supremacist ideology. So that way of understanding this has to be uh, really be complex and we have to do that work as people, as kind of people who are trying to build a multiracial front and and fight what we're fighting, right? And and some of this stuff also confuses well-meaning non-Asian, especially white liberals who, who want to be embracing multiracial coalition, but may not have a nuanced understanding of this caste and religious supremacist ideologies, but also want to be in support of like different communities and different races without really understanding this complexity can lead them in a very particular place. And it actually does huge injustice to the most oppressed communities within these racial identities. So I think that's one thing we need to think about. No, it's wonderful. I I mean, I think this is an opportunity, right, to really uh, not only question a very simplistic binary that is presented, especially by the liberal uh, center left, but also to have very concrete examples of how this binary fails us. And, you know, we see that. We see that with political elections that uh, take for granted a a POC vote and then are shocked when that isn't the outcome. And, you know, I think the more that we problematize a narrative that ultimately benefits sort of a white supremacist state, uh, the further we'll come in, in coalition with one another. So staying with opportunities for rethinking 
uh, rethinking how to engage in struggle and and in thinking how to oppose Hindu nationalism in the U.S., how does uh, opposition to a Hindu nationalism strengthen a broader pro-democracy movement? And where are there salient parallel struggles across communities that present these opportunities for mutually beneficial resistance work? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of going in line with the uh, earlier point, I think as if we want to build a progressive multiracial movement or build a multiracial coalition, we should be committing to challenging authoritarianism and increasing kind of supremacist politics of all kinds. So if you want to have an approach to challenge this supremacist politics in a transnational world, um, which is increasingly connected and, and, you know, connected with each other, we need to understand that supremacist movements are actually connected with each other through their ideologies. They're connected through their strategies. They're connected through financial flows and they're connected through political power. And these fascist tendencies or supremacist tendencies and approaches in one place, even though they may be based in a particular country and particular context, have a lot more common than each other with each other than we know. And then they they travel to uh, different places, and and that these ideologies are not contained also within the boundaries of a nation state. Right? We've seen this with Hindu supremacy. We've seen seen this with many other uh, instances. So Hindu supremacy and caste supremacy, we know, have become a global phenomenon, a global concern, and that has to be understood if you want to understand U.S. as a space for many different communities and that we need to understand what are the concerns of each of those communities and how we can be in in solidarity and be in common cause with the most uh, oppressed and most affected people within all communities. And that's that's what our analysis need to con- needs to consider, the nuances of racialization, caste ethnic supremacy politics within POC communities that is actually aligned with white supremacist politics. And as we know, you know, Hindu nationalists are making that common cause with white supremacy and that's known through so many places. There's a lot for us to learn from the long-term Palestinian struggle for liberation and solidarity efforts by anti-Zionist Jews to stand shoulder to shoulder with Palestinians. I think there's examples around campaigns like BDS and the current mobilizations that we can see um, and including challenging the weaponization and, dis- and distortion of what is considered anti-Semitism. And so what do we learn from that as we're thinking about some of the ways that Hindu supremacy is also aligning itself with the most Zionist cause, right? And that's another thing we need to think about. And then just, you know, in terms of connections between race and caste, these these are not new, you know, racial justice struggles caste equity, abolition of slavery and caste abolition. These have been, these parallels have been made since the 1800s, you know, the social reformers in the 1800s were talking about how the struggle against slavery was similar to and connected to and as an inspiration for people struggling against the caste system in India. In the 1800s, they were talking about that, right? It continued into the 1940s when W.B. Du Bois and Dr. Ambedkar were connecting with each other. It has continued when Dalit Panthers were formed in the in the form and inspiration from Black Panthers. So there is a lot of learnings that we have around kind of movements, uh, you know, to fight facial discrimination. And for for the U.S. movement now to fight discrimination, it takes a lot of inspiration from the movement to fight racial discrimination, continued movement to fight racial discrimination. 
So, you know, I mean, even now, Hindu nationalists are definitely making this case easy for us. But now they're saying there's a critical caste theory in play that we need to challenge. So, yeah, let's take this on. What a, a strong call to action and a really clear roadmap for us on the left to pursue. In that vein, you know, you come to your work in part as a member of the Severa Coalition. And I'd love for you to leave our audience with a thirst for more information, um, a thirst for more strategy. You've given us so much in this conversation already. Where can folks go to understand this movement more fully? And how can our listeners do just that? I think as an anti-fascist, anti-racist, multiracial, pro-democratic movement that I think we are all should be are part of. And we may also, uh, we, we need to kind of build this real transnational understanding and transnational solidarities together. And so with that kind of goal is what Savera was formed uh, under, right? Savera is this new platform. Savera means new, uh, it, it means dawn. So Savera United Against Supremacy, kind of the uniting against supremacy with the focus now with the Hindu supremacist politics, but also understanding that we need to kind of connect with all of these ways that supremacist politics is in, in taking place. It's a It brings together an interfaith, multiracial, cross-caste coalition of organizations, of activists to build a united front to resist rising tides of hatred and supremacist politics. And and part of it is that because we know that to succeed in in isolating or delegitimizing and weakening these forces, we need to work to construct a new majority, right? That that says the multi faith, multi caste coalition, multi religious, multi race coalition uh, actually is coming together to oppose this, and and only by doing so that we are able to do that. So that's kind of the attempt of Savera. So it's really uh, an invitation for many people working on this front in many different ways, including the United States and different parts of the U.S. and and the U.S. front. There is supremacist and fascist politics at play in many parts of the U.S. and and, uh, other places. And then you see across the globe and across the world, so many kind of authoritarian fascist trends are in, in coming up and they have been increasing. And so all of that has manifestations in the domestic front and all of that has manifestations in the harms that happen in the uh, in the U.S. as well. So there is a, a urgent need to come together. And that's part of what the reason that Savera exists. And it's really time for us to break out of our silos and work together to confront the moment that we are in today. And doing so, I think we require kind of working beyond our within and beyond, right? Within what we're already working on, which is needed and contested and needs to be focused on. But while we're doing and working on our own particular uh, struggles, how to become in solidarity and in also allyship and work on new models to kind of raise a united front is something, it's a, it's a need of our time, really. And so that's part of what Savera is trying to do and uh, it's a new formation. We're learning, we're, but we're, we're really inviting everybody to be and joining us and be part of this. Thank you, Prachi. You, you paint a very compelling picture of a, a supremacist movement that is well-organized, but then you leave us with a vision for how to counter this kind of power and this kind of organization and to do so in coalition, to do so iteratively and and expansively. I, I think that this is exactly the note that leaves our listeners and our movements um, 
prepared instead of in awe or stupefied in some ways. Thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here, Koki and PRA. Thank you for listening to Inform Your Resistance with Political Research Associates. Today's episode was hosted by me, Koki Mendes. Sound design and mixing by Alicia Crawford. The podcast is produced by Olivia Lawrence Wildman and Jack Geese King. Frank Lawrence created our music. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe. And the best thing you can do to help us is to tell your comrades about the pod. Resisting authoritarianism is better with friends. Until next time.